Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we're in the book of Acts. We've been going chapter by chapter. The last few weeks we did Acts chapter nine and chapter 10. And my goal uh, as we study those chapters was to call out how much the gospel message that was spreading to the people groups at the time really transformed the lives of the individuals. That was the main goal I really wanted us to see. Now, this is important. When I'm teaching on a Sunday morning through a chapter, that is not the only thing that is to be said about that chapter, okay? That is just one man sitting there saying, Jesus, what do you have to show me to show this church, okay? So as you read through Acts, like nine and 10, the Holy Spirit might pull something else really profound out to you. It's not the only thing in those chapters, but there is, this, this is a prominent theme in this chapters, and that's why I kind of wanted to shine a light on this for the purpose of our growth and transformation. The, the gospel message, when it comes into a people group and when it strikes at the heart of a person, it really has profound, working, transforming power that manifests itself in all kinds of interesting ways. And we saw the miraculous side of that we, we, we see when, the, when, the, when Jesus shows up and confronts Saul on his way to go murder Christians, he's thrown to the ground. Uh, literally, there's an outward uh, demonstration of, of transformation. Uh, his eyes are blind uh, for three days, and then um, someone comes and prays for him, and he, he's illuminated, he can see again, and, 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 and that's just a spiritual sense of the things that were happening. Like, he literally could see again. He could see things in a whole new light. That's powerful. And then later in those chapters in nine and 10, you see these miraculous events taking place where you know, people who have been bedridden for years, they're healed and they get up and walk. Someone who, was, who has died was raised back to life. But we also talked about how those aren't the only things that are happening, these big miraculous things, but there's also these really profound things happening in the lives of these individuals, like learning how to forgive one another, like the, the gospel, taking root in someone's heart, and then that person feeling the deep need to start finding ways to reconcile people who have been at odds for years. And really working out that ministry of reconciliation. Well, what I wanna do today is I want to take those ideas from nine and 10, this overwhelming power that the gospel has to transform individuals, and I wanna study how that individual growth translates into corporate growth in the church, okay? The purpose of my, my goal for 11 and 12 is to examine how this individual transformation in the life of this one person, God uses to bring transformation to the entire church body. How it doesn't just stay with this one person, it has this effect where it starts transforming and growing and impacting the church. 
And then how that power that started in the life of this one person and this one person's life gets changed and, and it starts affecting the church as a whole, how other people in the church start seeing how, oh man, well this person is really transformed and grow and how it starts encouraging other members within the church. Man, I, I gotta get my stuff together. It's time for me to start taking my relationship with the Lord seriously. Cause I, I, like I, I knew that guy before God started working on his life and like, I don't even know who that guy is anymore. This is a different guy. Like God, I, I, Lord, I want that. I want you to change my life the way that you change this guy's life. And then pretty soon that starts building within the local body and then you've got an entire church of changed and transformed lives and then non-believers are like, what is going on over there? Like I worked with this guy and I've worked with this guy for years and like the last month, different guy. Almost like he's a new creature, completely changed. I think I need to check this out. Because there's not many things in this world that promise a completely transformed new life. Most things in this world that are being sold to us are you can have your life and it's just a better version of it. But nobody's selling go down into the grave and come back up new. There's only one guy offering that. And so what I want to look at today is that process that builds in the life of a believer, translates over into a healthy, growing church that starts affecting other members in the church and then eventually spills out outside of the church to non-believers. And I want to make this point abundantly clear, that all healthy, growing churches have one thing in common. It is that they are filled with healthy, growing Christians. We've lost that. We, are, we have, I don't know how we got here. I've got some theories, but that's it. It's like coffee with me, probably not for here. But somehow, we've convinced ourselves that healthy, growing churches come about by hiring outside consultants to tell us what we're doing wrong. By reading books by non-believers who are telling us how we can change our message to be more appealing to them. The Bible's pretty clear on the common denominator on what brings about healthy, vibrant, growing churches, and that is that they are filled with healthy, vibrant, growing Christians. And if you don't have a healthy, vibrant, growing church, chances are it's because your church is filled with unhealthy, lazy, world-loving, so-called Christians. There's no other way to parse that out. So here's where I want to go today. Start in Acts 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, man, can you imagine... Like, what does your marketing material look like? <laughs> Got a whole party devoted to this. They criticized him saying, 
You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter began to explain it to them in this order. And he recounts what happened in the last chapter. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet was descending. It was being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. All the things that we good Jewish little boys and girls don't eat. And then I heard this voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three more times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were and they were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction that they were in fact Gentiles and people that I had previously called unclean and common. So I brought six brothers with me and we entered the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. And as I began to speak, The Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I to stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So Peter, he's up in Caesarea, last chapter, He's ministering at the house of Cornelius. He heads back to Jerusalem, and as soon as he shows up, he faces opposition. Peter, we've been hearing some very disturbing things about what you've been doing and who you've been hanging out with and the books that you've been writing and the things that you've been saying and the podcasts you've been showing up on and the things that you've been talking about in private. We have heard some very disturbing things about you. We heard that you've been hanging out with unclean Gentiles. You actually went into their house and had meals with them. Now to this, this doesn't, to, to us, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But in Jewish culture, even today, there are certain dietary restrictions and laws that are so strict that many Jewish homes actually have two separate kitchens for preparing specific food. That's how big of a deal this was. You don't touch this 
and this. You don't even bring this into your house. Well, guess who doesn't have those rules and doesn't care about those things? Gentiles. So you actually went in and you had a meal in a home where you know that they weren't treating the law correctly. They were mixing all kinds of things together. How in the world could you think that was okay, Peter? And Peter responds with saying, I want you guys to listen to what God did to my heart. And this is what's brilliant about the way that Peter responds. He doesn't engage in an argument. He doesn't engage in dialogue. He simply tells the people what God told him. This is what the Lord said, and it changed my heart. Because here's the deal. I'm all for our Jewish law and keeping food the way it's supposed to be, but at the end of the day, you know what I love more than not mixing this food with this food? Jesus. You know what I love more than church tradition? Jesus. And if I start butting up against that wall where church tradition is pulling my eyes off of him and I've gotta be a good little church boy and that's requiring me to, to, to not be a good, sold out, completely surrendered disciple of Jesus, then guess what I'm gonna pick? It isn't tradition. I want Jesus more than anything. And that response Peter clearly stating, look at what the Lord has done in me. Who am I to stand in his way? What was their response? Verse 18, they glorified God. They changed their hearts. This is what's so beautiful about this. Peter's personal growth translated into growth and change for the whole church. You've got an entire group of men who would identify themselves as the circumcision party. The moment they hear Peter say, this is what God is about, he changed my heart, their response is, all right, then it's time for us to change our heart too. Isn't that miraculous? The way that God works, that he would speak something very specifically to you right to you, and then, and then that thing that was so profound and life-changing to you starts getting rooted into the life of the church, and then I see it. God didn't directly speak it to me, but I can see it manifesting itself in your life, and then it starts affecting and changing me too. Isn't that beautiful? The way that he creates the church body to be so dependent on each other. That Christ's body functions so much like our body, that the heart is pumping one thing and it affects the entire body, that if one organ is out of whack, it affects something else on the complete other side of the body. That changing one thing in your diet can start changing other things that are not connected to your diet. Praise God for the way that he works in calling individuals to look at him and not stuff and the impact that that has on the church as a whole. I've said this for years. A church that is dysfunctional, falling apart, got their eyes on the wrong thing, 
you give me five completely sold out, surrendered, Jesus-loving men and women of all ages, and in a year that church will look different. Because of this principle right here. Because fire can't be contained. It catches everywhere it goes. Now it has the opposite effect. People who are not surrendered and their hearts are not inclined to God, when they see that stuff, they get even harder. But that's what Jesus means when he says, I'm gonna separate mothers and daughters and fathers and brothers and mother-in-laws and sister-in-laws. When this message spreads out, it has the impact to unify people who previously could not find any common ground because now we got Jesus, but it also has the opposite effect of hardening hearts and driving more and more people away. Let's go to verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. All right, so the writer of Acts, which is Luke, he zooms out from this specific situation in Jerusalem and he zooms in just north of Jerusalem to give us an account of what's happening in churches outside of Jerusalem. After the persecution of Stephen, people scattered everywhere and they're traveling to these different cities and they're speaking the word of God, but only to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to the city of Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. That's bold because the Hellenists are the ones who were responsible for stirring up the trouble with Stephen. They're the ones who wanted to fight and argue all the time. And the hand of the Lord was with them when they started doing this. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, praise God for those boys in, from Cyprus and Cyrene to not just preach the gospel to the Jews, but to preach to anybody that'll listen because a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And the report of this up in Antioch started spreading down to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem, head by the apostles, they make the decision, we need to send somebody up to check it out. Who do we send up there? How about Barnabas, old son of encouragement? Remember Barnabas? He was the Levite who decided to sell his property and give the proceeds to the apostles. He essentially said, man, I want to give my life to the work of Jesus. He was also the one that helped Paul when he came down and finally met the apostles and spent uh, seven days with Peter, he was the one that set up the meeting. This guy is, like his spiritual gift is encouragement. And you can't undervalue that spiritual gift because it has the, it, that gift is, man, there, if, if, you don't, if you've never met anybody who has that gift, it's hard to really describe it. But the moment you do, you're just like, oh, now I get it. People with this gift, they make you feel like a million bucks. Just being in the room with them, makes you, it just makes you feel electric. 
They have the ability of identifying gifts and talents in you that, that were dormant, that you didn't even know were there. And they, the, people like this, with this gift, they can see it. People like this gift are amazing. Verse 23, says, when Barnabas came and saw, uh, so he went to Antioch, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now while he was up there, he went over to Tarsus to look for Saul. The last time we saw Saul, he had come down and he visited the apostles, but then he started stirring up trouble, and so they sent him up to Caesarea, got him on a boat, and then he sent him back up to Tarsus to his hometown, and he's just been camping out there, just waiting, preaching the gospel, just waiting. Barnabas is up there in Antioch. He's like, man, there is so much work to be done. People are getting saved every day. They're going to be trained in the ways of the Lord. I need some help. I know somebody. So he goes over, one town over, to Tarsus to find Saul. Because he knows Saul would be, this would be perfect. And when he found him, this is verse 26, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is where the name came from. In the church in Antioch, they were first called Christians. Now in these days, a prophet came down from Jerusalem. Now it's weird, now I'll just sidebar. We keep reading this and it says like he came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, but Antioch is actually north of Jerusalem. So why are they saying, like when people say he went down from Jerusalem, he went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is south, why are they saying it? Because they don't talk like we talk around here, all right? They're not saying like north, south, east, well, like he went down and he went up. Like I, like I wouldn't say I went up to Tampa. Like I went down to Tampa, right? But Jerusalem was sitting on a mountain. So if you're gonna go down to Antioch, it doesn't mean that you're going south. It means you're coming down off of the mountain and then they're going north. Just a little freebie. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them was named Agabus. And he stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this actually did take place during the time of Claudius, the emperor. So at this time, when Agabus the prophet comes in and says, hey, there's going to be a famine in the entire world, verse 29, the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. All right, now that's important to the point we're making, but there was a lot of geography in this, and so just for a moment, I want to show you a map. So, my people. Put your pocket protectors on, everybody. All right, so this is the region we're talking about. Jerusalem, big city there. Antioch, big city north. Tarsus, just to the left of Antioch. The major cities are in black with a dot. The regions are in red. So Samaria is not a city, although there is a city there, but referencing Samaria in this text is just the region of Samaria. Judea is not a city you can go to. It's an actual region. So you got Judea, Samaria, Phoenicia, Cyprus. These are the areas that were referenced in this text. And so essentially what we have happening here is that 
Things are hopping up in Antioch because people who fled Jerusalem during like following Stephen's um, uh, murder, they went up to Samaria, Phoenicia, Cyprus, they're all over the world. And some of them headed up to Antioch and they start preaching the gospel. And when that happens, guess what? A church gets planted in Antioch. Well, the church starts growing so quickly that the church in Jerusalem is like, we need to go check that out. Let's send Barnabas up there. So Barnabas, he treks on up to Antioch. He gets up there and he finds out, man, the Lord is really doing some amazing things up here. I'm so, like lives are transforming. Things are amazing. God is really at work, but there's so much work. I need some help. So he goes over to Tarsus. He gets Saul. He comes back to Antioch. And for a year, Saul and Barnabas are hanging out in Antioch and they're preaching the gospel and people are growing, and the church is transforming. And right about that time, after about a year, this prophet named Agabus shows up, and he says, hey, the Lord's got a word for you guys. A famine is coming over the entire world. And the church in Antioch, the leaders, the disciples, they get together and say, well, what are you gonna do about this? Well, we should probably support the church in Jerusalem. Now, why would we need to support the church in Jerusalem? Because there is tremendous persecution happening in Jerusalem. Because what's going on in Jerusalem is you've got these Jews who have now converted to Christianity. They have now, they've, they have publicly confessed that Jesus is the Messiah we've all been waiting for. And all the political uh, ramifications of that start affecting their livelihoods. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're starting these, these uh, campaigns within Jerusalem. Hey, uh, don't go buy uh, pita bread uh, from John's pita shop because you know he's a believer now. He's, he's one of the followers of the way. And people are like, well, I don't want to be seen in his shop because the repercussion, because reasons, you know. And so people are just like, okay, well, and then all of a sudden, Old John over here, he's, he's been making pita for years. Everybody, he, everybody knows he makes the best pita in town. And now no one's buying his pita anymore. You got Moses over here in the corner. He makes the best falafel every, anywhere. Any, people love his falafel. Guess what? No one's coming to his business anymore. You're starting to see the ramifications of what happens when you publicly confess, I follow Jesus and the world doesn't like it. Guess what? It's going to affect your business. It affected tremendously the businesses in Jerusalem to the point where now people who said, I'm a follower of Jesus, well, you're not welcome here. Don't drink at that water fountain. You can't go to this bathroom. You can't shop here. We're not gonna come buy your stuff. And it created an immense sense of tribulation, persecution, and poverty. So the word that comes forth from Agabus is, hey, all that persecution that's happening down in Jerusalem, all the poverty that's starting to come about, is gonna get worse because a famine is coming. So the church in Antioch makes a decision. Hey, let's help the church in Jerusalem. Now here's what's fascinating to me. Where do you think they got that idea from? Barnabas, the dude who, when he got saved, said, I'm gonna sell my property in Acts 4, 36 through 37, and I'm gonna give the proceeds to the apostles and let them distribute as they see fit. You've got that guy who has generosity at his core, 
They send him up to Antioch to start discipling and working with these new believers. And the moment these new believers hear that there is financial trouble in Jerusalem, their immediate instinct is, let's send them support. Let's be generous. I told you when we started this, that there is a profound impact when the Lord gets a hold of one man or one woman and transforms their life. What he does in that life never stays in that life. It starts building and building in the life of community and church. And what you have here in Antioch is Barnabas' DNA to be generous impacting the lives of the disciples in Antioch to the point that the moment they hear that there is a need, no one has to convince them that they should give immediately. It's just, of course, this is what we do because this is what we've been taught to do. This is what Barnabas showed us being a Christian looks like. Are you seeing how amazing this is? an individual being transformed and then planted in a local church and that church being transformed as the Spirit fills and works through that individual. Let's go to chapter 12, verse one. This is about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. One of the sons of thunder was killed with a sword. Why with a sword? Because at this time, the sword was the instrument used to take the life of a rebel or someone who was actively trying to overthrow the government or establish systems. The fact that he killed him with a sword was a statement that this guy, he wants to overthrow my kingdom and God's kingdom. So James, the brother of John, was killed with a sword, verse three, and when he saw it, that it pleased the Jews, this is Herod, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread around the Passover time. So when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Why do you think he had four squads of soldiers? Because these Christians just keep slipping out of jail. Every time you put them in jail, somehow they get out and they're on the same street corner preaching the very next day. So Peter was kept in prison, watch this, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, pause right there. We started this chapter with Herod. Now, this is confusing because this is not the same Herod that instituted when Jesus was born that all the babies were going to be killed. Around the same time Jesus was born, they're trying to wipe him out. Not the same Herod. Also, not the same Herod who Jesus called a fox who was at... Uh, in, in power while Jesus ministered. So how is it that we have all these different Herods? Well, he- Herod, the Herods, they were a dynasty. They were a family. And they were a family that was deeply connected to politicians in Rome. And that's how they got their power. They were Jewish or half Jewish. 
and they were instituted by Rome as Jewish kings to rule over specific regions. The first of these would have been Herod the Great, and he's the guy who was responsible for killing all the babies when Jesus was born. Okay, so that's, that's like the grandpa, Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great had four sons. Their names are not important, mostly because they're hard to pronounce and most of them, they died soon after they took their reign. One of the Herods was Herod Antipas. He was the guy who was responsible for killing John the Baptist. He was also the guy who Jesus called a fox. So you've got Herod the Great, and he's got four sons. Three of those sons are ruling different regions around Israel, but Herod Antipas is ruling in Jerusalem and Judea, and that's the, that's the second Herod that we see mentioned quite often uh, in, uh, he's the one who had like his niece dance for him, he's the really weird one, right? All right, so that's, that's the second Herod. The fourth brother, Herod the Great had him killed on suspicion that he was gonna overthrow the throne. So Herod the Great, four brothers, three of them are ruling. One was murdered right around three or four uh, AD under suspicion that he was going to overthrow the throne. But that brother who was murdered had a son. And that son is this Herod, Herod Agrippa. The other three didn't last long. And when they were taking power and Herod the Great had Herod Agrippa's father killed, Herod Agrippa, the, the, the young man, he grew up under the unbelievable stress that you could imagine. Like the idea that your dad had been killed for usurping the throne and now your three uncles are in charge and they're fighting amongst each other for power. Do you, I mean, do you have any, like, could you imagine your life lasting very long? No, it's a real Lion King situation. So what do you do? You gotta run away, you gotta hide. So this Herod, Herod Agrippa, he left, his mom took him to Rome. And he lived in Rome and grew up around some of the, uh, um, the, the politician's sons. And he got really close with some of their uh, sons. He became really good friends with two guys, specifically one Claudius and one Caligula. Both of them became emperors. So Herod, Agrippa, the one whose dad was killed by his grandpa, was sent away to Rome, but while he's there, he's making political connections. And he's pretty sharp. He's smart. He's wise. He knows what crowd to get in, what parties to go to. His best friends eventually become emperors. When Claudius becomes an emperor, they put Herod Agrippa in charge, not just over Judea, but over the whole region. He starts ruling most of Israel. And Claudius gets killed and his friend Caligula takes over and it just continues. So the point of me bringing this up is one, to kind of clear up some of the confusion about this name Herod, but also to seed the ground that Herod, this King Herod, Herod Agrippa I, had very powerful friends and he fancied himself as a man who was untouchable. Knowing that, 
Look at what the church does in the face of a man who thinks he's untouchable. They pray. When you're staring at Mount Everest, all you can do is pray because God is bigger than Everest. The church is growing. The church is learning how to solve problems. And their primary tool is prayer. Now go to verse six. It says, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. That's a lot of guys on the payroll just to guard Peter. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side because apparently Peter was asleep. I guess he had made the peace with the situation. He was just at peace. The angel struck him on the side, woke him up and saying, get up quickly. And the chains, they just fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. All while the two soldiers who were literally sitting right next to him had no clue. And he went out and followed him. The, the gate opened, he followed him out. He didn't, he, at this moment, he didn't know what was being done by the angel, that it was even real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out of the city and boom, it just opened for them on its own accord. And they went out, went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And at that moment, Peter came to his senses and he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose also name was Mark, John Mark, the guy who wrote the book of Mark, where many were, there were many gathered there at her house and they were all praying. They were praying for Peter. So he knocked on the door of the gateway and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And she recognized Peter's voice and in her joy, she forgot to open the gate turned around, ran back in, and started reporting to everybody, Peter's at the gate. And they said to her, sweetie, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and, and they kept saying, no, well, maybe it's this angel. All right, well, that's a whole different sermon series. <laughs> you tell them, not there, not today. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed but motioning to them with his hands to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he had departed and went to another place. Some people think it was probably Caesarea, but to this day, we still don't know where he went, which is one of the reasons why in verse 18, when they came there, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him high and low, couldn't find him. Wherever he hid was so good that we still don't know where it was. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now I'm bringing this up in this section along the lines of what we've been talking about. 
And I just want to, I want to make this abundantly clear. Like it doesn't say in here what the church was praying for. It's not that clear. When we're reading this text, it doesn't say in verse five, they were earnestly praying for him and they were praying that he would be released and also that God take out Herod, just take him out. It doesn't say that they're praying that. So the first interpretation of this text is that we could assume that the church just prayed generic prayers. Lord, have your will, have your way, whatever it is you want with Peter, just do what you want with him and just be with him right now, comfort him, wipe away his tears, let him think about how good glory is gonna be. And then God just chooses to answer in his own grace, okay, well, I'm gonna take those prayers, I'm gonna answer them my way, and I'm gonna set them free. That's, that's one way to read it. It's not my way of reading it. When I read this, it seems pretty clear to me that the church is praying very specific prayers. Now, I assume this because that's the kind of prayers I would be praying. And that's dangerous to read your, what you would do into the text. But I can just tell you, I'll just be honest, if Peter was in prison, here's what I'd be praying. Lord, kill Herod. Take him out and set Peter free like you did like two chapters ago. Make it wild. Blow everybody's minds. <laughs> Remember Philip, the whole teleporting thing? Do that, Jesus. <laughs> That's what I'm praying. And so I see the church earnestly praying and spending time at Mary's house at night, gathered together praying, and I just can't help but assume that they're praying specific prayers and that God answered those specific prayers. Because I think that this story specifically is about God answering prayers and God increasing the faith of the people who are praying those prayers. I think that's what this text is about. And I say this because of the dynamic we talked about before. There was a persecution at an individual level of Peter, but God used that individual persecution of Peter to increase the corporate church in prayer. You see the impact? This guy's going through this thing. What does it do in the church? All of us start praying. I saw this when my wife, when my wife was in the hospital last fall. You got my wife, she's not feeling good. She's, we don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, all right, ramp it up. Let's do it. Come on, Jesus. And within like an hour of praying, things start changing in the hospital room. Because what happens in the individual affects the global or the, the, the local church. These people start getting into action and, and prayer is increased, but not just prayer, faith is increased because the moment they see that prayers are answered, all of a sudden their faith grows. Oh, Jesus, you're in that business too? You still do those things, huh? This is what I think this text is about. God is answering their specific prayers by setting Peter free in a miraculous way because it grows their faith. But the funny thing about it is that in the middle of this, Peter's faith is growing because he starts this whole thing thinking it's a vision. He's not even believing God's gonna set him free that night. He thinks it's a vision. And the moment the church hears that he is set free, their immediate thought is, oh, it's his angel. Surely God isn't answering the prayers we're praying right now. But then I wanna look at verse 17. 
What does Peter tell everybody to do before he disappears for a little while? Go and tell these things to James and to the brothers. Why? Because God working in individuals impacts the church too. And he wants their faith to be built that God does this kind of wild stuff. Why is this so important to us? Because from where we're standing right now in history, there's a lot of wild things on our newsfeed. I don't know how I'm supposed to help Ukraine. But I know we've got missionaries over there that are preaching the gospel. They're in trouble. There are people just trying to live their lives. Now we've got tanks rolling in. They're, they're literally, I don't know how I can help that. Oh, prayer. Because in the middle of this war, guess what the people are ripe to hear? That there's coming a day when there won't be any more wars. There is a king offering something greater than just a politician who promises peace for the next four years. We're talking about a, a king who's going to come in and rule, and there's going to be peace for the rest of eternity. That no one will have to build another weapon of war ever again. Let's go to verse 20 and finish the story. It says, when Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so he kind of zooms out of this story specifically of Herod impacting Peter, and he zooms big back in on Herod. Why is he doing this? My personal, my, my personal interpretation of this, I think, he's, I think Luke is doing this to let us know that God is still answering those prayers. I'm convinced that the church was praying, Lord, if, if you want your gospel to continue, you're going to have to remove this guy. Like, take him out. You remember how harsh you were with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about how much they gave to the church? How about a guy who's literally murdering the apostles? How about you take that guy out? I think that's why this story is in here. So Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and they were having, uh, they, they having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They had asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So there's this story of Herod kind of flexing his muscle. He's untouchable. He's ruling these different economies, north and south. He's involved in trade. He thinks he's bigger than he actually is. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration, an oration to them. And at that moment, the people were shouting, the voice of God, not of a man. Now pause here just for a second. And the reason I want you to pause here is because there is another account of this story by someone who is not a believer. It's actually a Jewish historian named Josephus. And he records this event in unbelievable detail. Here's what's happening, just a quick pause. Herod comes out to speak to the people one day and he puts on his royal robe. This royal robe had been sewn together so that literal flecks of silver were sewn into the robe. So when he steps out into the sunlight, the sunlight reflects on his robe and it's almost like a mirror. The people are blinded because he's so bright. Why would somebody do that? Because he's trying to connect symbolism to the people that I am far more superior than you, almost to the point of a deity. And it works because the people look at it like, oh, this guy's not a man. This guy's a God. 
We're gonna elevate, you're a God. Josephus records that at that moment an owl flew overhead and rested on a rope right above Herod and Herod looked up, perceived it as a bad omen and immediately was shot with pains in his stomach to the point where he keeled over and was screaming out his pain. He was brought back to his bedroom and he laid there for five days in pain and then eventually died. Now what does the scripture tell us? That was the, that was the account of a non-believer watching all this happen. What does scripture tell us happened? Verse 23, as soon as the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. There's no owl. It was an angel. Just a coincidence. Why did the angel strike him down? Because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And what happens as soon as Herod's out of the way? The word of God increased and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. And this time, up in Antioch, they brought with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, why was this story recorded? I think it was recorded because of what happens after Herod is taken out. The word of God increases and multiplies. This thing that takes place in the life of this person, the church watching their prayers getting answered, it has an effect on the life of the church. They start believing that God's actually in the business of answering prayer. And that we don't have to pray generic, pray generic prayers, we can pray very specific prayers and God will give us very specific answers. Almost like a relationship with a friend. And I started today's message with a very clear direction. I wanted to make the case that individual growth brings corporate growth. And we saw that in the life of, of Peter's heart changing. We saw that in Barnabas' generosity affecting the entire church. We saw that in Peter's freedom impacting the, the church uh, at a maturity level, increasing their prayer and their faith. We saw how the church grew after Herod's death. I'm making this case because there's an important connection between healthy disciples and healthy churches. And the connection is what I said at the beginning. Healthy, vibrant churches are filled with healthy, vibrant Christians. And the reason why America, specifically America, is having a church crisis right now is because those churches are filled with Christians who are having a crisis right now. We've spent a solid 20, 30 years not digging into this, but digging into what's happening in the world and how that might possibly have some biblical truth in it. We spend more time looking out there than we do in here and what it's created is a tremendous lack of understanding and depth in God's word. We are biblically illiterate. And weak, unhealthy, uninformed Christians translate into weak, unhealthy, uninformed, powerless churches. But there is good news. And the good news is that change starts in your home. This can change. 
but it starts in your house. It doesn't start in the building. It starts before everyone gets to the building. If you wanna see a church that loves the word of God, then you've gotta fill that church with people who are in love with the word of God. And that aren't on a steady diet of only hearing it once a week. I love you guys so much. Now can I say something that's gonna hurt? You want a church that's filled with valuing and treasuring times of worship and corporate gathering? That church has to be filled with people who show up to church on time. Churches across this country are empty for the first 30 minutes because most of us don't see any value in getting together and singing together. Praise God that we see the value of studying the word together because I don't know that there's as many seats open. But you want to place some value on a healthy, vibrant church, really treasuring, loving, and singing and worshiping to Jesus? Do you remember what it was like when we didn't meet together? That's one of my heart desires in cycling in the church for us to not meet the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Christmas because it's my pastoral way of just injecting a little moment of reminding us what we have when we gather together because sometimes you forget what you have in, until you don't have it. And so the value that we place on things comes from where we give our attention and our time and our resources. And what we say is we love you, Jesus. I'm not just talking about us now, I'm talking about the church in America. We say, yeah, we love Jesus, but that is not reflected in any of the decisions that we make in our daily lives. We show up when we can, if we can. When we're there, we don't really give full attention. We aren't really surrendered. We're not captured by this. Now listen. Part of that is because there are some lazy pastors in this country who will download a sermon off the internet or spend maybe two hours a week putting something together that's mediocre and presenting it like it's life transforming. And no one's being fooled. Like, that was lazy. That wasn't even the gospel. There's no Holy Spirit moving in that. I don't even believe what you're saying. You're preaching, and I don't even believe that you believe it. That's part of the problem, but that is not the only problem. The only problem is that church gatherings have encouraged to get to that place. Please don't do anything too offensive because I'm going to bring my non-believing friends to church so they can hear the gospel message. Well, why don't you just tell them the gospel message at work? Oh, I can't do that because I'd lose my job. Really? Maybe you need to lose your job. Mm, we didn't like that one, did we? Look, I'm telling you, we're, we're rapidly approaching a time in our lives that you will literally feel 
repercussions and perse- uh, uh, persecutions and, and tribulations because of just simply what you believe and you're not gonna be able to avoid it unless you change what you believe or you stop talking about it. But here's the problem with that. Jesus gave us one command before he left and he said, go and talk about it. So you've got to ask yourself, am I pleasing my king or am I pleasing my boss? Because here's the reality of it. You can only serve one master. And if your master, Jesus, told you that what you're supposed to be doing with your life is sharing this life transforming power and you are in a sphere where you are told you can do anything you want and we're open and welcoming to any ideology except yours, don't talk about it. If you do, you'll lose your job. Folks, I'm here to tell you that I think that's a risk worth taking. Because if we really want vibrant, gospel-filled, life-transforming churches on every corner, it starts by making sure that they're filled with fueled, on-fire, life-transformed people who are surrendered to Jesus. It's good news. It starts at home. The choices you will make to fix your eyes on Jesus and not this world will have direct impact on this church, the church down the road, the church in Tallahassee, the church in Florida, the church in America. I understand that it, think, it feels like this is too big of a thing. We can't, that is the opposite of what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that the world gets transformed one surrendered heart at a time. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.